The Guardian. Hello, this is The Business. I'm Adit Chakraborty. On this week's podcast, a £6 billion penny-pinching exercise. Sitting at the table of 27 finance ministers, you can't help but be conscious that you represent the country with the biggest budget deficit of all. Child trust funds are scrapped. There's a recruitment freeze across Whitehall. And watch out for front benches on the number 63 as ministers are told to use public transport. The author, Justin Fox, discusses how we came to believe that markets are always right and why we're wrong to think that. There's no reliable way to beat the market, that the market will outsmart you eventually. And I I don't disagree with that. I mean, there seem to be some people who've made pretty successful careers of market beating that don't seem to be pure luck, but I can't can't prove that Warren Buffett or, or, or George Soros isn't just lucky. And where do you draw the line when it comes to what you write on Twitter? Derek Simpson certainly seems to have got that one wrong. This is The Business from The Guardian. In the studio today, we're Philip Inman, economics correspondent and new convert to Twitter, Philip. Is that right? I wouldn't exactly call myself a convert. Um, I'm deeply cynical about the idea of spending time doing it. But, um, but we're encouraged to interact with our readers. And the only advantage I could possibly see, uh, most of my colleagues, I think, are just basically retweeting articles, as in they're pointing people... To their own work. To their own work. Yeah. And... For me, the only advantage really was it, to get people to participate in the work that I do and to join in. So if they've got information that would be helpful to me in writing things, given that they are sympathetic, they are following you on Twitter, they're reading your articles in The Guardian, um, then maybe they want to point me in the direction of something that's going to help. So I, on Sunday, started to say what I was going to be doing. Uh, to see if I get any response. And what's your Twitter name? Um, Philip Inman. Okay, so everyone can just go confusing, on. No. Type in twitter.com forward stroke Philip Inman and we'll arrive at your Twitter feed, will we? Yeah. And you'll have many, many gags to share with us <laughs> and economic nuggets. We've also got Tim Webb, our industrial editor. Tim, any tweets you want to tell us about? Well, you know, coming from the industrial side of things, clearly, uh, you know, uh, not heavy industry. It takes takes a bit a bit longer for uh, some of us to evolve. But um, no, I, I'm an avid user of, of Twitter. Um, uh, but I have to say, I've never actually um, tweeted. Oh, so you're um, a details of meetings you're a like Mr. Simpson, who right. I think from we'll uh, Unite, who'll be coming on to. Which, uh, yeah, I'm not tweeting as we speak. No, just more metal bashing. As promised seven days before, the coalition government outlined more than £6 billion of immediate spending cuts. It's to bring down Britain's £156 billion fiscal deficit, which is now the highest in the EU. Child trust funds have been scrapped and civil service recruitment has been frozen. Let's hear from the two men in charge. Axeman, Treasury Minister David Laws, but first, Chancellor of Exchequer, George Osborne. We need to take urgent action to keep our interest rates lower for longer, to boost confidence in the economy and protect jobs, to show the world that we can live within our means. We need to tackle the deficit so that our debt repayments don't spiral out of control. And the more we do now, the more we can spend on the things that really matter in the years ahead. Already, we are paying out more on debt interest than we spend on defence, on transport or on the police. 
If we don't take action, we will soon be spending more on servicing our debts than on educating our children in this country. The years of public sector plenty are over. But the more decisively we act, the more quickly and strongly we can come through these tough times. We also promise to cut with care. We are going to be a progressive government, even in these difficult times. When the Prime Minister asked the Chancellor and me to come to the Treasury at this time of great national challenge, we were determined jointly that we would work together to deliver three objectives to restore responsibility to the public finances, to nurture the economic recovery, and to protect the vital public services which we all depend upon, and those in our society who are least able to bear the burdens of national austerity. This will not be an easy task, but we are willing to be judged against those tests. David Laws there. Philip Inman, let's start with you. There was a huge amount, I mean, as, as I recall, the, the election campaign, when it talked about fiscal policy at all, was all about the £6 billion figure. Um, how important do you think yesterday's cuts will seem to be coming in this year? I think they are a real turning point. Um, in some ways, they're not. In some ways, you could say that they're simply more of the same. Labour had already put in about £12 billion of cuts this year, and these will come on top of that. So you've got 18 rather than 12 and this is um, against a prospective deficit of about 140 billion uh, borrowing this year to come. So, you know, you could say, and, other, and plenty of economists have said that this is a, just a drop in the ocean. It's, it's, but it's going the wrong way. That's the problem. It's something where we're, you know, arguably Labour were going the wrong way. They were too um, austerity. You know, they were too, too going too far in terms of dealing with the deficit. We don't have... What, you're saying because there was only £6 billion worth of difference between them, both both parts were actually being too hawkish on the budget deficit. Absolutely. The, we're, we're in this strange situation where, in some senses, we do have broken Britain. We do have a very terrible situation. We're in a much bigger debt than we ever thought we were going to be. And we've, um, and we've got a situation where you look at the things that are going to drive us out of the recession that did before, banking industries uh, and other kind of key industries, and you wonder where they're going to grow given that export markets are shot to pieces, the Eurozone isn't growing. You know, all those kinds of usual exits out of recession don't look like they're going to be there for us, even with a depreciated pound. So um, so it's a real bind, you know, but does that mean that you then go back and say, right, we're going to cut everything on our debts? See, when you have George Osborne in the speech you've just relayed, where he says we're spending more on debt interest than defence, on schools or whatever, you know, well, I spend my personal budget more on debt interest than I do on food, gas and electricity, because I've got a mortgage. Was I wrong to take the mortgage out? Was I wrong to make the investment in property to actually put a roof over my head? No, I wasn't. And the fact that the, the bill for that interest is higher than other bills that I have doesn't make it wrong. So the fact that we have a big mortgage to pay for the bank bailouts, to pay for all these things that we had to do, doesn't make that mortgage wrong. But in assessing when you start to pay it down and at what rate you start to pay it down, you have to judge your finances, how they're going to grow in the future. And they're not doing that. They're now driven by a dogma which says that last year we said we were going to cut, so this year we have to carry on cutting. Uh, Even though the rules of the game have changed, everything around us has changed, and none of the easy exits we thought were going to be there are. And briefly, just before I bring Tim, are you a double dip man? Do you see us lurching back into recession? I think there's a very, very strong danger of that, yes. 
Tim, there's an implicit question in what Philip was just saying, which is where's the growth going to come from? Now, when Labour were in charge, Peter Manson always thought the growth would come from his department, the, the business department. How's business under Vince Cable held up under these spending cuts? Well, obviously it's very early to say, but um, Philip talking about easy exits, one of the easy exits that uh, Manison was uh, was hoping for was was uh, from industry, from manufacturing, rebalancing the economy away from financial services and had this much vaunted policy of industrial activism, which uh, um, he, he gave a lot of speeches about. But, you know, towards the last six months, 12 months of the Labour administration did start to bear fruit and... Um, Lots of grants were given to the car industry, um, benefited Sheffield Forge Masters, a manufacturing firm making uh, parts for uh, nuclear reactors, also got given a grant. Uh, and now, obviously, the new government has said that they're going to review all these uh, grants. Um, and I think we'll know within the next month or so whether whether or not they'll remain in place at and tell us what sort of money it was. Was it grants? Was it loans? It was, was a mixture. It... Um, Shepherd Forge Masters, that was an £80 million loan, straight loan from the government, but that was part of a um, £170 million package in total, also involving money from the private sector and um, money from the European Investment Bank. Money for um, uh, Vauxhall, that was uh, in the form of uh, financial guarantees for loans from European Investment Banks and other loans that the government also agreed to underwrite. Um, and it's, I think there was some political capital. I mean, the, the Conservatives before the election accused uh, Labour of just doling out these grants, you know, in the run up to the election, which admittedly did start to accelerate come March, April. And, uh, you know, they, they accused Labour of doing it for, for political uh, reasons. But I think it's difficult because... Clearly, manufacturing, you know, the financial services is a lot is a lot weaker um, than it was before the recession. So, where do we where are we going to get the growth from? Um, manufacturing is one um, uh, obvious area. Um, the, we need to redistribute wealth more evenly around the country, and manufacturing is based more in the northeast and um, the northwest, less around the southeast. And if if the new government does start does actually decide to withdraw these uh, funds then that's going to leave um, industry struggling. Tim, this is the first time we've had you on the podcast since this glorious new era of the coalition government. Just tell us what the top three things you would say are in Vince Cable's intray now he's taken over at business. Royal Mail certainly won. Um, it's not in the Queen's speech, um, but I think it will be, um, they will get the, the postal bill that would enable part privatisation in this parliament. Uh, he's, he's he's quite clear, I'm I'm told by people very close to him, that, that, you know, he, that he wants this to be done. You know, he's determined to see it through and it also see some kind of um, restructuring the post office uh, as well, so they can hopefully try and sell that more to the unions and and the public skeptical you know those who are skeptical about privatization of Royal Mail by saying, "Okay, well, you may not like the privatization but about Royal Mail, but we 're going to protect the the post offices and we 're going to turn it into some kind of people 's bank so Royal Mail is one um obviously the budget deficit like it or not then that's he that 's clearly he 's got to manage that is that um, a vince thing well it 's not a vince thing, I think David laws and his Colleague, Liberal Democrat colleague in the Treasury. I mean, obviously, this is, these are all Treasury edicts. Yeah. These 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 cuts are coming, being passed on from on high by the Treasury, and it's for the department to to manage. So, they've got a very large budget, one of the, one of the largest in Whitehall, and, and that's why they're seeing some of the biggest biggest cuts. So that's the second thing, and then the third thing is is managing for growth, which we haven't heard really anything about for, uh, about that so far from from the new government. They've been focused on. Uh, on cuts 
uh, you know, as we've been talking about. But I think that was one good point that Madison made before the election that it, it's it's all very well talking about the deficit and how we're going to cut the uh, uh, the deficit, but also we need to focus on how we grow our way out of the recession. And I think Vince Cable will will be you know that that is the kind of third priority: how to stimulate economic growth through business. Okay, we'll leave that there. Leave your thoughts on this subject at guardian.co.uk forward slash the business. And if you're looking to make some efficiency savings, why not subscribe while you're there to our podcast? It gets automatically delivered to your MP3 device and takes all the hard work out of listening. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. Over the last few weeks, we've heard an awful lot about what the markets want. Or rather, don't want. They didn't want a hung parliament, apparently. Nor do they want a Clegoran coalition government. But what markets do want, we're told, is spending cuts, and lots of them. How did markets come to take on this all-important status? And just how good are they at determining policy? Justin Fox knows. He's the author of a new book called The Myth of the Rational Market. He came to The Guardian recently, and we began by talking about the idea that the price is always right. Normal people think of markets as a little crazy. And I would say that on a day-to-day basis, most participants in markets think they're a little nutty and don't think they're perfectly rational. But to a great extent, a lot of regulation and definitely all the academic work done on markets for a long time sort of went out from this idea that if, if there's a price for something in a financial market, that price must already reflect everything you'd want to know about the security, all the, all the risks, all the potential, everything out there. Okay, and what you've said there is kind of uh, the the most minimal definition of rational markets theory, efficient markets hypothesis. But you can take that theory and take it, and you can bend it quite a long way, can't you? You've got some quite crazy permutations of the same idea. Well, yeah, and I, I mean the most minimal version of the efficient market hypothesis, and it's kind of funny because now when you talk to finance professors at the University of Chicago, that's the one they say, "Oh, that's all I believed in the first place." Is simply that there's no reliable way to beat the market that the market will outsmart you eventually. And I I don't disagree with that. I mean, there seem to be some people who've made pretty successful careers of market beating that don't seem to be pure luck, but I can't can't prove that Warren Buffett or or George Soros isn't just lucky. So so that's the real minimal version. And then it, it kind of grew in the late 60s and early 70s, partly because the sort of a lot of the then dominant investing names on Wall Street were all just completely crashing and burning and embarrassing themselves. So I think the finance professors who had started coming up with these theories in the early to mid-60s thought, okay, we, it's, we've been proved right. Um, and that's when they started expanding it. And, and I think one of the big ideas that really, I, I never found it any kind of paper making this case in any sort of formal way, but it's very clear that it was widely believed was okay, then the more financial markets you have, the more securities you have, the more derivatives and permutations of derivatives that you have, the better off we all are. And I think that clearly, I mean, that was totally Alan Greenspan's belief. It's the belief of, you know, the the likes of, of, of Robert Merton, the Harvard professor and very Nobel Prize winner. Between Gene Farmer formally coming up with the efficient markets hypothesis in the tail end of the 60s and its complete rise to ascendancy in the sort of late 70s, early 80s. It was quite a period, right? So now we've in we've just come past the crash. Can you see any ideas lying around at the moment that you think, well, in 20 years' time, that, that might really grow into kind of raft of policy recommendations? I mean, what's next? 
I, I mean, I kind of, the end of my book, I, I talk about that and it's a little bit of a cop-out because I just don't know. And, and it, I mean, it seems what's happened is there's been this kind of pullback among economists. Okay, we're not as certain about some of these things as we were, but there's not this obvious new set of things to replace it. I mean, they're, they're, for 30 years, 20 years, there's been this great enthusiasm that somehow chaos theory will suddenly give us all the answers or complexity theory, and, and maybe it will. I, I mean, there definitely are some very smart young economists like Marcus Brunermeyer at Princeton, Jeremy Stein at Harvard, and I'm sure a lot of other people elsewhere, I just know those two, who are basically spending all their time thinking about why bubbles happen and are coming up with all sorts of cool theories about it, mostly involving lots of rational investors, at least short-term rational investors, all acting together to cause these these cascades and falling off cliffs and all, all the lot. So it may just be Regu- you know, the same old economics we know with these new things stuck on dealing with financial markets. It may be this grand new thing, but I, I'm a little dubious of that. I, I, I think one area you'll hear from journalists, people in other academic fields is, well, the, the economists need to back off from the math. And I just, I don't see any incentive for the economists to do that because the math for one thing, it, it helps them with their reasoning in some areas. It also blinds them, but it also it just gives them something that most other social scientists don't have. This this feeling of we're we're a, almost a hard science. Otherwise, and, it's just sociology, but more boring. Right, and 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 it, it it allows them to give more definite answers than a sociologist would ever give. And why would they want to give that up? And it, it seems like even now, okay, some people think economics has been discredited, but who's going around getting the most press? It's economists, sometimes semi-rogue economists like Joe Stiglitz, but he's actually a pretty conventional economist when it comes down to it. Justin Fox here, and his book, The Myth of the Rational Market, is out now. This is The Business from The Guardian. I wish my d- boss would stop sending me stupid emails. My boss caught me on Twitter three times today. This shit has got to stop. My poor heart cannot take it. I used a new auto-send email feature last night to my boss. Completely fooled him. He called me this morning to thank me for working so late. I lied about being sick on Friday. Now I really am sick. F*** karma. Having a glass of wine on the balcony. I love working from home. Goofing off at work. Cisco just offered me a job. Now I have to weigh the utility of a fatty paycheck against the daily commute to San Jose and hating the work. Those are real-life tweets that got their writers sacked. But it's not just lowly wage slaves that get caught out. During recent strike negotiations with BA, Derek Simpson, the joint leader of Unite, was found to be tweeting sensitive parts of the ongoing discussions. The airline's bosses said they were astonished that he was fiddling on his Blackberry, as it were, during meetings. One read, Willie and Tony locking horns over accusations of unequal treatments of allegations of bullying. Tim, let's start with you, since you were more sceptical about the world of Twitter <laughs> at the outset. Um, do any of those tweets, do they sound like rough justice to you? You, you send off something inappropriate about your mm. boss and you get the, then you get the knock. Well, this is a great question, isn't it? To tweet or not to tweet. Uh, and uh, the, the, the great question for the 21st century and clearly, um, in this age of uh, uh, we can have access and information about acquaintances, colleagues, bosses, um, you know, you've got to be careful uh, when you are tweeting that um, you want to know people who you might not want to read them are actually reading them. So, um, yeah, Derek Simpson, that's 
that's an example about uh, of that. I mean, it's extraordinary that he was in high level negotiations, sat around the table with with Tony Woodley, his, uh, his colleague from Unite, and Willie Walsh, the chief executive in British Airways, and he was tweeting on his BlackBerry. About what was he five, thinking? Five, what was he thinking? Well, he's probably bored, to be honest. Like, you know, there are a lot of meetings, people fiddle with their Blackberries, and it's kind of, um, people might think they're checking their emails, something work-related, but they could just be tweeting, you know, what they're going to do later that night. So I think it's, it seems, it, having Blackberries in, in meetings now, it seems more um, acceptable to be looking at your Blackberry and even emailing something or writing something on a Blackberry, because that might be, you might, people might think you're actually doing work. But um, if you're actually tweeting the events of that uh, meeting and possibly in a none too positive light, then um, clearly that's not going to go too well, get down too well if it makes it back to other attendees. Philip Inman, now you're on Twitter. Can we expect you to be tweeting from within meetings in this office? Do you know what? I think that <laughs> my tweeting is going to be extremely limited. Um, although it does depend to some extent how much it picks up. And I think what people find is when they start doing it nothing really happens you're kind of tweeting into the ether and uh, not much happens but possibly at some point you know people start to log, log on to it just like blogs you know people were blogging and they were blogging and no one was paying any uh, blind bit of interest but now lots of people blog and they have thousands of people who hang on their every word so you, you just can't write all these things off I have to say, I'm, I'm sorry to butt in, but I, I'm now going to be reading Derek Simpson's uh, tweet, tweet page now much more regularly. And I have to say, I can safely say I never read it once before uh, before this weekend. So Philip's point is proved. <laughs> um, Tim, there, there is a more serious point, which is the world of Twitter and the world of blogging, Facebook, all of these things. If you're someone who's doing that in an official capacity, you're meant to be showing a slightly more unbuttoned side of yourself. You're meant to be giving not just a formal thing that you would issue as a press release, but kind of the thinking behind the scenes. So it's it's quite a difficult area to negotiate, isn't it? Well, it is for organisations or someone like Derek Simpson, who clearly he, he wasn't tweeting about what he did in the pub, you know, the night before. He was he was tweeting about his professional capacity as Joint Secretary of of unite union and 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 i think um uh this is the the, the maybe the myth about that about uh, twitter people feel they have to you know be down and trendy and with the kids and exclamation mark exclamation mark but just because i mean people like ed miliband the former energy secretary he he tweets regularly you know about what deck his department um did before the election but it was all very factual stuff it wasn't uh, hey man i'm down with the kids yeah this government's boring this is what we're really doing it was actually just uh, repackaging the government's own announcements in a slightly in it well in a shorter format because clearly they have to so um i think derek simpson really just um just wasn't really probably engaging his brain when he was doing that i don't think he was he was uh, trying to be informal and um I think he was just, you know, the immediacy of technology. Sometimes we we forget what what the implications, of what we're doing. Judging by his his tweets since, you know, the the controversial tweets in question that we've been talking about, he's 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 adamant that he's uh, you know has done nothing wrong and he's um, you know hit hit bat, back at his critics in cyberspace. So, you know, he's standing firm. Without getting too earnest about it, you know, you do see that you're. Uh, oh, what we like to call capitalism is just sort of all about moving faster and faster. That's the advantage that you have. Not that you're doing something better, not that you're making something that other people can't make, but that simply you do it first. And all this instant messaging is just about getting out 
your message first and doing it in as you know the fact that you have to do it in 140 characters is just one you know a limiting factor to it but what you really want to do is be getting the information out as mm. against your rivals mm. and that so much of what business about is about now is basically churning out similar products whether it's cars or washing machines or whatever it is but if you can get there first that's the thing that differentiates you and tweet and tweeting is all about that kind of you know that kind of effort to just speed everything up yes but do you think Derek Simpson uh, would have uh, you know three hours later four hours later sent a press release round on email or through the press office or the official channels saying Willie Walsh refused to back down and he was you know locking horns with Tony I mean I think you're right up to a point. Clearly, it is about immediacy and being the first with the news and first with whatever your view of of what's going on is. And that's why Twitter is so popular. But I think also it does, as you were saying, the teacher break down these boundaries and people are lulled into a false sense of security and maybe much more informal than the cold light of day than they would have would normally be or would normally want to be if, if they didn't have a BlackBerry in their hand and a Twitter page and press sent. Well, I suppose I'm talking about something that's slightly different in the I talk to people in the media, say, for instance, who've got their Blackberries on permanently and will say, I don't read newspapers. I don't watch the telly. I get everything through Twitter because people they've logged on to people mm. who are telling them what's happening in their media world uh, or pointing them to articles, pointing them to news feeds, whatever it is, RSS stuff, you know, where that's where they get all their information from and they can go into a meeting completely clued up with the latest gossip on whatever it is you want to know whether it's jordan and her latest you know breast enhancement or 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 whatever the gossip is for that industry you have it there at your fingertips because you have spent the previous half an hour checking your tweets that's a good point philip i've never wondered whether jordan actually tweets i'm going to check out jordan's (laughs) twitter page that's, As it that's on my to-do yeah. la- to do yeah. list, yeah. yes. Right, let's leave that there. Uh, so we've got a Twitter sceptic on one hand and a serial indictment of late capitalism on the other, and we, we're calling this a business podcast. It seems slightly unlikely to me. Anyway, thanks to Philip Inman and Tim Webb. Don't forget to add your voice to our debate at guardian.co.uk forward slash the business. This podcast was produced by Andy Duckworth. I'm Edith Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.